0: Good morning everyone. Nice to see you all here. Imagine tomorrow someone says to you, um, what did you do at the weekend? And wanting to be factual and accurate, you find yourself saying, I went to hear a talk on two sentences from a two thousand year old Greek letter. And then that person kind of says back to you, Oh, uh was it by kind of an expert on Greek literature from the university or something? And again, you're keen to be truthful, um, so you say, no, I think he's some kind of engineer. <laughs> and at that point in the conversation, you might find the person leaning forward and asking you, are you feeling okay? So, so what is going on here today? What, why have we come to church to listen to a sermon on a few verses from a 2,000-year-old letter of Titus? Well, let's remind ourselves, we are listening to God's word, and it's powerful. And that's not to say that every word of a Regent Chapel sermon is gonna be perfect. I'm sure today will not be the case, but as we listen to the Bible being read and explained each week, remember it is more powerful than anything else in this world. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So let's approach Titus 2 this morning with an expectation that God will speak to us into our lives today. Let's pray and ask for ears to hear. Father God, we just bring you this short time together uh, before you. We ask that you would speak into our lives. Lord, we thank you that the Bible is so much more than a collection of words. It is the power of God unto salvation. And I pray that as we read it and study it this morning, that you would be at work in our hearts and judging our thoughts, or guide us in the way we should live our lives. I pray that each person here would be blessed by what we read and say and challenged to follow Jesus all the more. So we ask for ears to let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so so far Titus chapter two has covered some really practical things about living as a Christian, whether we're young or old, men or women or as Paul spoke about last week, even as slaves. The verses we're going to look at today are very much about the how and the why. For Christian slaves in 1st century Crete, to free men and women living in Newcastle, in 21st century Newcastle, how can we put this teaching into practice? How do we all rise to the challenges laid down in Titus chapter 2? Let's read today's section, verses 11 to 14, to find out. For the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We're going to see today that God's grace is the key to Christian living. I want to look at it under these four headings. Verse 11 is good news for everyone. Verse 12, guidance for every day. Verse 13 is glory forever. And verse 14, good works for each of us. So we'll see that God's grace is for everyone for every day and forever and for each of us this means there's good works to be done the good news is for everyone who remembers the opening ceremony of the london 2012 olympics if you're, if you're old enough nine years ago now uh, a bit of a crazy ceremony i looked back at some clips on youtube and thought that was a mad night what was all that about um very impressive though it was but there was a moment in it, i don't know if you remember when in the middle of the stadium like a Proper house appeared, built of bricks and everything, and then it was lifted up into the sky, and uh, kind of rather strangely, below it was a was a guy at a desk. And it turns out it was the British computer scientist Sir Tim Berners-Lee, often referred to as the inventor of the internet, and he was sitting at this desk, typing with a computer, and the words "This is for everyone" appeared across the stadium. I think the point that was being made was the internet was free, open to all. But of course, everyone meant as long as you have access to an internet device, some sort of power supply, and the money to pay for it. It was estimated this year that 40% of the world don't have access to the internet. But this morning, we're talking about something that really is for everyone right now. If you're a human being, you qualify. Free access, open to all. Yes, God's grace is for everyone. Another translation of verse 11 puts it as for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people just a few words but with massive implications remember this is Paul a Jew writing to Titus the Gentile reminding him the offer of salvation is for all people everyone even the inhabitants of Crete who were so known for their moral depravity and this echoes the words of the apostle Peter in his famous speech In Acts chapter 10, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. The offer of salvation through God's grace really is open for every nation. And that's why earlier this year we sent Lucy Atkins, didn't we, to the islands to learn a new language and to tell people thousands of miles away from Regent Chapel about the grace of God. As a church, we really believe that this offer of salvation is for everyone. I don't know if you've ever come across an offer that looked too good to be true. I remember um, when me and Lucy were first married and we were buying our first washing machine, those heady days of first white good purchases, uh, distressingly expensive. Um, and I remember signing up to an offer which said, if you paid an extra 300 pounds, they would replace your machine with a new one if it broke down in five years. And if you didn't claim on that insurance then great you got all that money back five years later sounded great guaranteed money uh, back or a new machine now for those of you with a technical financial head on you'll realize that that isn't really a very good deal but i can't explain now however i dutifully filed away the receipt and then forgot all about it i came across the sheet again uh, two or three years later and i bothered to read the small print on this offer at that time It turns out that you had to post the receipt within one week of the purchase date exactly five years later, not a day earlier, not a day later, or the money was gone. Anyway, slightly annoyed by this kind of tricky small print, I vowed to remember the date I was gonna get my money back. So you can imagine how irritated I was five years and two weeks later when I remembered to check the date. It's a sad story. In the end, this offer wasn't really all it was cracked up to be. But God's offer of salvation is not like that. There's no complicated small print or tricky clauses to catch it out. It really is for everyone, old and young, men and women, whatever our status in life. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So let's think for a moment about this appearing of God's grace. The first coming of christ the greek word used is where we get our word epiphany from and the word has the meaning the visible appearance of something previously invisible it was used in greek to describe the dawn as the sun first comes up over the horizon in our case the appearance or, or epiphany is the coming of jesus at that first christmas and the idea of sunrise works really well from creation as almost anywhere in the world you can see the dawn happen every morning The light shines, it dispels the darkness, it brings warmth, and it opens people's eyes to the day. God's grace has appeared to all men and women everywhere, and it offers salvation to all people. Simply put, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Of course, this grace didn't just come into existence when Christ came at Christmas. God has always been gracious, but it appeared visibly in Jesus john's gospel puts it begins like this the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth so what implications do these statements have in verse 11 for us today do we really believe god's grace is for everyone the good news of salvation in jesus i mean i know we can believe it in a head comprehension sense or in a hypothetical theoretical sense, in a God can do anything sense, we believe that. But when it's closer to home, do we really believe that God's offer of salvation is for everyone? The person in your family who seems so disinterested just now, the friend who doesn't believe in God, the co-worker who has no time for Christians. I'm sure we can all bring to mind people uh, in our lives who deep down we think it's just not for them. And that is of course what the devil wants us to think. Jesus' death was just effective for some people. No, John three sixteen reminds us that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's so many examples in the Bible of people that seem too far from God's grace. The dying thief on the cross, surely he'd missed the boat. King David, a murderer, an adulterer. Even Paul the apostle, at one time a persecutor of the church. And I wonder if Paul was thinking in his head when he wrote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Yes, even me. So that means don't give up praying for the family member, the neighbor, the co-worker, your friend. Don't give up talking about your faith to them. Don't give up sharing your life with them. Keep praying for them. Because God's grace really is for all men and women. There's no one so far away from from God that the good news of salvation can't reach them. The good news of God's grace really is for everyone. But not only that, God's grace is more than just about salvation. It's also about everyday living. Some of the the younger members of the congregation might have seen the film Black Widow this year. Um, For the uninitiated, Black Widow is is a Marvel super spy who, while she has no obvious superpowers, herself has incredible strength and skills to fight the bad guys. Um, quite, Quite impressive, this woman not to be trifled with the film begins with the backstory of the character uh, a young girl growing up in what looks like a normal family in the suburbs of an American town um, but it quickly becomes very apparent that the family home and the everyday life is all fake it's a cover for her parents who are not her real parents obviously um, to get on with the real mission of uh, spying and stealing secrets and bursting out of prison and escaping capture and all that kind of good stuff but for christians our everyday life is the mission it's not a pretend cover the real holy god stuff doesn't happen elsewhere doing the ordinary everyday family life is where it's at that is our mission field verse 12 starts with some seriously important practical advice summed up in one word it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age. So God's grace is the superpower in our life. It gives us the power to do the often difficult thing and to say no. No to ungodliness. That's saying no to the anti-God view we see in the culture around us, at work and online. The culture that says greed is okay, look after yourself first. The material world is all there is. And that's all that matters or the anti-god idea that says i am like a god deciding what the truth is or just as dangerously the anti-god idea that i am worthless and unloved and there's no point in carrying on god's grace also teaches us to say no to worldly passions the idea that if it feels good and makes me happy then i can do it whatever that is with no regard To the Almighty God. We need to remind ourselves every day of God's grace that He has loved us and bought us with the blood of Jesus. We are not our own, so in every situation, every day of the week, wherever we are, we need to be ready to say no to ungodliness. That word no is a powerful tool in the Christian vocabulary. Not long uh, after Lucy and I got married and moved into our first home, um, there was a knock at the door. Uh, I'd just got in from from work uh, and I was wearing my my V-neck jumper and my new office tie, looking fresh-faced and very keen. Um, I could see straight away that it was a salesman. He sized me up and his opening words were, is your dad in? (laughs) Now, in the split second where I felt slightly miffed that he'd mistaken me for a schoolboy, you know i was a homeowner i was married come on uh, i also realized this presented a golden opportunity so i replied truthfully no he's not in just now right i'll call back later the man said result <laughs> that no had the desired effect and off he went if only it was that easy uh, with godliness and godliness to turn it away by saying no hard to do and hard to keep on doing when we're faced with daily temptation unfortunately it's not a one-off decision let's all just agree this morning we're just going to say no to ungodliness sorted no sorted. paul reminds us of this daily battle in romans the good that i want to do i don't do and the bad i don't want to do that's what i keep on doing we don't solve this issue it's a daily management of decisions kind of a problem When Jesus told us to take up our cross every day, this is what he meant. And I think if we're honest, certainly if I'm honest, I think this is one of the main ways we can feel despondent about our Christian lives. I've been a Christian for 5, 10, 30, 50 years. How can I still be struggling with this? Or why do I so often fail to do the right thing? And that's why Paul addresses both the young men and women and the old men and women, because these are problems we're going to have to address all our lives. So in the everyday, we need to learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But God's grace also teaches us to say yes to a self-controlled, upright and godly life. Now, if you read that list of characteristics, self-controlled, upright and godly, Is there a little part of you thinking, well, that sounds a wee bit dull. You know, would that be the kind of person that I'd have as a first down on the party list? Let's invite so-and-so around. They're just so upright. But ask yourself, do you really want to hang out with someone who is out of control, sleazy, and godless in their conversation? The idea of being people who live self-controlled lives is key to the teaching throughout Titus. In fact, it's the fourth time that um, Paul has used that word alone, self-control. One of the mysteries of creation is when God created us as human beings, he made us in his image and he gave us free will. That means we can choose to eat and drink what we like, assuming we have access to food. We can say exactly what we think to people, even if it offends them. We can choose where we go, given a degree of freedom. And at the extreme end of things, we can choose to harm others and ourselves we actually have that power at our disposal. And that is why self-control, whether it be how we control our appetites or what we say or where we go, is actually key to a successful life and certainly a God-pleasing life. Think of Lionel Messi, who at 34 years of old, is still considered by many to be the greatest footballer in the world. And one of his defining qualities is that he rarely gets angry or involved with the opposition, even when they're trying to kick lumps out of him for the whole game. I think he's only ever been sent off once. It's his self-control that makes him such a great player. What does the the opposite of self-control look like? Out of control, impulsive, suddenly changing course, the sort of person you're never quite sure what they're going to do or say next. Maybe the person... Is like Rex a Labrador. Let me explain. Lucy's brother uh, James was over from America visiting us from uh, recently uh, and he was complaining about his dog Rex. That is a proper dog name by the way. Now apparently uh, in common with many Labradors Rex has no self-control when it comes to food Uh, and one day uh, when James was away he he managed to get into their garage uh, which was stocked with a month's worth of food uh, both of dog and cat food yes not only did Rex eat all the dog food he also finished off the cat food too so James found him immobile groaning on the garage floor and it required his stomach to be pumped by the vet at many hundreds of dollars to save him just like Rex the Labrador without the virtue of self-control you can end up in a mess maybe god is bringing something to your mind about which you need to pray for more self-controlling we all need god's grace to help us to be self-controlled that is for sure about what we drink or what we eat about what we say and how much time we devote to exercise we might need help to be self-controlled in how long we spend looking in the mirror how much telly we watch how many instagram posts we like in one day or often we check the news headlines God's grace is for the everyday challenge of living a godly life. Maybe this week you'll face a difficult situation where you're going to need to say no to worldly thinking and a yes to self-control. It needs regular repentance, starting again when we fail, and a daily commitment to rely on God. Verse 8 in Titus, which Paul covered last week, is a really good challenge to us. Not everyone will like us or applaud the decisions we make, especially when we say no to certain things. But because of our self-control, will they have nothing bad to say about us? So God's grace is for the everyday challenge of the here and now, this present age that we live in. But it's also very much about the future too, the forever that awaits us all verse 13 while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ god's grace is about a glory that will last forever our future hope is linked directly to jesus return and no matter what is decided at cop 26 in glasgow next month we need to remember the destiny of humanity is in jesus hands and not with our world leaders here Paul uses the word epiphany once again, talking of Jesus' second coming. His first appearing just lasted 30 years or so. He appeared in humility as a baby laid in a cattle's feeding trough, visited by lowly shepherds. What will this next coming of Jesus be like? Titus 2 tells us it will be a glorious appearing. If the first appearing saw Jesus' glory veiled, then the next appearing will see that veil lifted and every eye. We'll see you. There's lots of things in life that we look forward to. Maybe it's your next birthday if you're younger. Maybe it's the thought of a first paycheck if you've been studying for a while. Maybe the hope of getting married or of having children or grandchildren. Perhaps you're looking forward to a holiday. Or maybe something as simple as Newcastle winning some matches. It might happen. But I guess whatever you're looking forward to, you're hoping for, We've certainly been reminded over the last 18 months that sometimes our plans for next week, next month, next summer are not as certain as we thought. But this blessed hope is in God's hands. His timing is perfect and we can be certain that it will happen. The words of the angels at Jesus' ascension into heaven are worth hearing again on this subject. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus Who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus' second coming is the culmination of history. Paul uses lots of Old Testament references here in verse 14 to make the point. Gave himself for us, recalls the Passover, to redeem us, the Exodus escaped from slavery, and a people that are his very own, echoing the idea that Israel was God's chosen people. This is the blessed hope we wait for but not in the sense that we wait for a bus or we wait for the metro you know that period of time when you're sat around a bit bored nothing to do until it arrives maybe this idea of glory forever is a word from God to you this morning I know some of our church family are suffering with continued health problems others have the burden of ongoing care for those they love the most The Bible tells us this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I can't begin to do that truth justice, but ask God to encourage you with this thought. Our present sufferings will one day not even be worth comparing with the glory that is to come. Rather disappointingly, uh, this looking forward to the second coming is something that Christians have gotten in a bit of a mess about throughout church history. Certainly from my childhood, church Bible studies seemed to involve endless discussions and speculation and sometimes outright arguing about when Jesus would come again. I always felt that Paul's advice to the Thessalonians was sufficient. About times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night we don't know when it will be but until then we redeem the time for the days of evil so that means we don't behave like the religious cults who from time to time taken to hilltops awaiting the end of the world no while we wait for the blessed hope of Jesus return we are very much still to live in this present age Whenever I think um, of this waiting for Christ's future return, I'm reminded of the incredible true story of the British Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton back in 1915. He was a tough guy. He and his crew and the ship Endurance um, got stranded in pack ice in Antarctica and their ship broke apart. The men escaped in lifeboats across to the uninhabited Elephant Island, where suffering from cold... Hunger and frostbite, they set up camp. The only hope they had was to send for help. No one was gonna find them there. And so most of the crew had to stay behind while Shackleton and five other men set sail across the Southern Ocean to try and get a ship to come and rescue them. It was an incredible feat of navigation, sailing, mountaineering, and human endurance that eventually allowed Shackleton to get help. But for the rest of the men, waiting in the cold in constant hunger on a rocky island not knowing when or more likely if help would ever come it was a challenge to keep going in charge of these men was frank wild appropriately named who every day made his men pack up their shelters and keep a lookout in case today was the day the captain would come he wouldn't even let them stockpile provisions for the future instead He had to live every day in readiness that the captain was coming. Over three months later, incredibly, Shackleton did return and rescued every last sailor. Now we can be much more confident than the crew of the Endurance that our saviour is coming back. We don't know when, but we are certain that he is. It should motivate us to keep going. We don't know when, but we're certain he is. Whether we are nearing the end of our race or at the very beginning, keep going. Much is still uncertain about the future, but this much is clear. We have a blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus. So while we await this blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus, what are we to do? Verse 14 tells us, "Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul finished this section by reminding us that each of us are part of God's own people. He's calling out a people that are his very own, redeeming us from wickedness, purifying his people. That's where we play our part by saying no to ungodliness and showing self-control. But let's focus on the last phrase here, eager to do what is good. The literal translation is enthusiastic, zealous for good works. This is the proper response to God's grace revealed. It's because of his grace that we want to respond in good works, not to earn God's favour. And it's so important that we get that distinction. It's because of his grace that we want to respond with good works, not to earn God's favour. You know, as Christians, we should be activists in the sense that we should be involved We should be problem solvers initiators carers helpers supporters prayers we need to fight against that apathy we find in our hearts that says i don't know what i can do to help so i'll leave it for now it's not really my kind of thing it's not my cup of tea paul tells us that jesus own people are eager to do good one of the best examples i know of this principle in action is my mum At one point, she had five children under nine years old. So just feeding us and clothing us and getting us out to school was was a major achievement each day. Um, Could get quite lively between the five of us. At one point, um, she had to introduce a rota at lunchtime, just to see that we couldn't all be in the house at the same time, because it would end up in a fight. Um, Never a dull moment. Anyway, the secret of mum's success was her legendary list making. She would make lists of all the things she had to do every day, and I mean literally every day. But despite being crazily busy bringing up a large family, my mum was and and still is eager to do good. Amongst the practical things of everyday life, those daily lists would always have space for those in need. Phone so-and-so, drop a card off, buy a gift, give a lift to, have round for dinner. And even following the loss of my dad last year, those lists of good work still go on. The thing she found hardest about the lockdown was not so much being alone, but that she couldn't repay people's kindness to her by having them round for lunch, something that she's been busy making up for in this last year. Let's not be people that wait for writing in the sky to tell us who or what to get involved with. Let's be people who turn hopeful thoughts and good intentions into real actions. Maybe we need to develop our own to-do list of good works and be intentional in working through them. Eager to do what is good. That's what Paul says to Titus God's very own people are like. And when you do those things, you are imitating God's nature. I like Paul's way of expressing this in Ephesians 4. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. A thief isn't renewed when he simply stops stealing. But instead when he starts to give to the poor when he turns his focus away from his own needs and turns his actions towards others we often think about serving in church but the truth is church activities as long as the notices can be sometimes are just a small part of our week we are to serve god in the first 2 to 10 places in our lives as young men and women as older men and women as employees as children as husbands and wives at home, at work, and as we go about our lives day by day. So while Paul reminds us of Jesus' first coming and points forward to his glorious second coming, he doesn't want us to be stuck looking back or looking forward to these two epiphanies. He wants us to live in the present age in the light of those two events. We have work to do. Are you eager to do good this week? So what have we learned from this 2,000-year-old Greek letter? The offer of salvation is open to everyone. It gives us grace that we need every day, and it will last forever. It's what God wants each of us to grasp as we spend our lives doing good. God's grace is for you this morning. It costs Jesus everything to call it a people that are his very own. If you haven't taken that step to become part of God's people, Why not accept the offer today? Turn to God in prayer and say no to ungodliness. Ask God to forgive your sins and pledge your life to follow him. We said at the start that God's grace was for everyone in the broadest sense. But the offer of salvation comes to each of us individually too. So don't let anyone or any influence tell you you aren't good enough. You aren't holy enough. You've done too many bad things. You couldn't keep up with Christians. God's offer of salvation is for each of us, and that includes you. It's a gift from God. Have you accepted it yet? And for each one of us already following Jesus, let's make today and tomorrow and the next day days in which we are eager to do what is good for Jesus.